0: Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. Corporate culture is the largest asset that is not on a company's balance sheet, but it's also a black box. Only those who work at a company really know what's going on there what management is really like, and who has the biggest impact in making the company tick. Shiva Rajgapal is Kester and Burns Professor of Accounting and Auditing at Columbia Business School. But when I spoke with him on the Real Clear Values podcast about corporate governance and corporate culture, it was less about numbers and more about people. If you have any interest in corporate governance or corporate culture, then this is a must listen. Shiva Rajgapal, thank you so much for joining me on the Real Clear Values podcast. It's my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Shiva, first of all, I'm really interested in your story of corporate governance. You've you've been working in relation to corporate governance for quite a while now. So so tell
1: us about your role in that and how you became involved in corporate governance. So So my day job is that of an accounting professor. And I often tell people, uh, accounting is nothing but, you know, policing integrity. That's what we do. Mm. So so a, a natural offshoot of that mission uh, is, is, you know, getting getting interested in how governance works, how stewardship of resources works in general. And, uh, you know, a lot of my research, uh, as is typical of uh, you know, a lot of the accounting and finance academics, deals with crunching large data sets. So I used to do that a lot early in my career and it's almost like reading tea leaves you know for instance you run these massive mm-hmm. regressions and more often than not a variable like firm size would often be significant and you know we wouldn't know why so people made up stories they would say uh, after the fact that this probably picks up uh, the visibility of the company or it picks up economies of scale or this or that so it occurred to me that you know why don't we just go ask people mm-hmm. so you know, so some of my best cited papers are actually papers with no regressions, where we just go and ask uh, board members and uh, CFOs, what do they do, broadly speaking? And as a result of that field work, I've talked to hundreds of uh, CEOs, board members, uh, and I'm involved in a couple of uh, uh, programs at Columbia where we where we train CFOs and board members. Uh, I actually learned much, much more by talking to people than from abstract facts. But having said that, I mean, you need this balance between, uh, you know, what Mohammed Yunus, the, uh, yeah. I think the gentleman who won the Nobel Prize for uh, Grameen Bank. So he used to call it, I think, the, a, a worm's eye view and a bird's eye. View. Yes. In the sense that if, you know, so, so talking to people gives me a worm's eye view, but you also need the bird's eye view in terms of crunching large data sets. To see patterns that the worm might perhaps miss mm. so the trick I think is to kind of as best as one can definitely combine the worm's side view and the bird's eye view mm. uh, and, and in doing so uh, uh, most of my the ROI on, on uh, a conversation with with an informed board member or a CFO is like a thousand percent relative to crunching data. Because a lot of you know a lot of business, there's a bunch of black boxes. It's hard to know what's really going on underneath, and you know many of us, all kinds of rating agencies, are, are effectively trying to size up. You know, it's like the the story of the what is it, ten blind men or women trying to size up the elephant. They don't know it's an elephant. Yeah, that's what a lot of us are doing. So unless you get some sense for, get some intuitive sense. Of what the process looks like from from the point of view of a worm, it's very hard for the bird to make sense of the process. If you know what I mean? Mm. So mm. you know, uh, so so think about, say, sell side analysts. Think about uh, proxy rating agencies, even even these ESG rating agencies. You know, you, you can you can write a thousand questions on how ESG works in a company and so on, but unless and a lot of that is a bird's eye view, but unless you have the worm's view it's very hard to make sense of those ratings hmm. because every every business to me is an ecosystem you hmm. know these are like mini economies and they're complex institutions and there are you know interesting trade offs uh, so any snapshot almost by definition is oversimplistic and unless hmm. the snapshot and whatever that is you know a sell side rating or an esg rating or you know uh, maybe one of the proxy advisors Advising institutions on how to vote on a particular governance issue. So, unless you understand the the backstory and the context, it's uh, it's very easy to get misled. Yeah. So, so you know, so the worm's eye view for me is talking to all these board members and CFOs, and the, the bird's eye view so is looking at large samples of data, trying to make mm. sense of how the world works. You know, if that right, helps yeah.
0: Yeah, very interesting. It reminds me of, of, um, of Ron Heifetz's analogy in his book, Leadership on the Line, where he talks about being on the dance floor versus being on the balcony. And, and the idea that you're on the dance floor and you're dancing with people and you're seeing people face to face, up close, in the moment, in the heat of it and everything. But then sometimes you need to take a step back from being in the heat of the moment in one micro area and get onto the balcony so you can get the macro picture and see the whole thing. In, in a single piece and how all these different movable parts fit together as a whole. So very interesting analogy
1: there. Uh, absolutely. First, you know, so, so the other analogy is that is, you know, in, in the world of education, teaching using cases versus teaching people macro statistics. I think they're both mm-hmm. important. And you can, you can easily overdo one at the cost of the other. Mm-hmm. Macro statistics are dry they're not, you know they don't come to life. So you need cases. But if you overdo cases, then you end up sampling on either the extremely good events or the extremely bad events in a, in a, in a company's history. Uh, so, you know, so I, at least I've tried throughout my career to try to balance the, the, the worm's eye and the bird's eye view, if you will, the micro and the macro. Very good, very good. So Shiva, going, going right down
0: to the, the fundamentals of first principles, if you like, how would you define corporate
1: governance? Well, you know. So I often tell people: if you get confused about what to do in a in a corporate context, imagine a world where you are a hundred percent owner of the company. Mm. That, to me, is the essence of corporate governance. Somebody is giving you capital. What have you done with it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: More often than not, many <laughs> many many who get the capital never want to hear from me Just mm-hmm. give me the capital and go. Over. Right, so so what have I done for you with the capital? Uh, th- that's the essence of corporate governance. It's the stewardship. It's the separation of the owner and the manager, mm-hmm. and institutions and processes that we can come up with to ensure that we don't completely sacrifice the owner's interests. It's never going to be perfect. It's never first best. Nothing in the world really is, mm-hmm. but in a in a in a in a messy second best kind of way, how can we make sure? That uh, we actually do what the 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 individual who gave us the capital wanted us to do, mm. and this this I think is the is the essence uh, of of a lot of uh, conversations today. You know, for in, for instance, if you go to any regulator's website, say the SEC, they'll say that we fight uh, scams because we care about the Main Street investor. You know, if you go to the NICE, the New York Stock Exchange governance manual, they would say we're, we're trying to protect the interests of the shareholder. Who is the shareholder? Mm. You know, so it, so if you look at this whole supply chain of finance, I think there are so many intermediaries that separate a saver, say the, the, a proverbial fireman or firewoman, who mm. gives up some savings and presumably wants a comfortable retirement, mm. and the whole value chain that you know transfers that money. Uh, to the company, there's mm-hmm. so many people involved, right? The, the, mm. you know, brokerage institutions, uh, you know, large the the big three in the U.S. BlackRock, State State, Fidelity, pension funds in the middle, you know, mm-hmm. several rating agencies, like say sell side analysts, credit rating agencies, ESG rating agencies, proxy advisors, and you know, I mean, I often wonder. Are their objective functions aligned? Are they doing what the the, the proverbial firewoman wants to be done with her capital? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not sure. Yeah. So you know, modern governance has become very complicated. So mm-hmm. so you know, and so a we don't know who the real shareholder is because yeah. it's, it's also fuzzy. So we end up talking to the people who represent the real shareholders, whether they are these large institutional investors or uh, since we don't necessarily talk to the investor, it's usually the sell-side analyst who's supposed to be a representative of somebody. Yes. So there's so many objective functions here, so many parties involved. Uh, the classic agency problem. Yes, and absolutely. That's what governance is meant to resolve. Uh, mm. And how good a job does do these institutions do uh, is it's an ever evolving, fascinating uh, conversation mm-hmm.
0: you mentioned you mentioned a word that's dear to my heart especially in the work that I do and the the concepts and the principles that I work with in in my mentoring work stewardship how how do you define stewardship in in this context in the context of governance because I think from what you're saying it's absolutely central to ensuring that the the original investor has good returns and, and good use of the capital that they've invested.
1: So I'm, I'm going to go back to my you know uh, simple clarifying principle you're not a steward if you don't think like a hundred percent owner of the company hmm. so all these confusion comes up because uh, I'm not the owner it's so easy to spend somebody else's money hmm. right whether I'm a politician or whether I'm a CEO or whether I'm a director or whether i'm a I'm a whoever in this huge value chain that links the the, the saver to the company uh it's so unless you internalize the cost the personal cost of your of your of your decision uh you have an agency problem mm-hmm. effectively yeah. and you know so so stewardship is what would a 100% owner do and you know if if your decision deviates from what you think the, the 100% owner would do if you can ask the 100 if you can ask the real owners that's great if not you know hypothetically if you can think about what the what the 100% owner would do versus what you're doing mm. That's lack of stewardship, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's it's not that difficult, except mm. you know, people come up with very elaborate stories for to justify what they do. Yes, partly because I think it's it's probably a failure mm. of stewardship, if nothing else. Once you hear these elaborate stories, it's not that complicated. Mm. Elaborate stories should make you nervous.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. I, I really like that benchmark that you use as well. What, 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 it's kind of like, what would Jesus do except apply to corporate <laughs> governance? It's like, what, what would the owner do? So, so maybe, the, maybe there's a, a governance adaptation of, of that Christian phrase that, that can be used. There's, there's a, and it's a very, very, like you say, it's very simple. It's a very simple benchmark. It's, we talk about all this, all these different stakeholders and people who the money passes through. But actually like you say when it comes down to it it's very very simple and it, it tends to be when we build up these stories and these narratives that that something's gone awry and something's buried underneath all of that narrative that's
1: maybe in some, some, because somebody exactly because somebody is pushing his or her agenda mm, mm, you know and they're yeah. very clever, very elaborate dressed up with data and evidence and this and that you know uh, so I often t- tell my students trust but verify. You know, yes. I don't want you to become a hardcore cynic. Otherwise, it's hard to live your life. Mm. Uh, but you have to be skeptical at all yeah. times. And yeah. that thats what what—that—that's—that's—that's uh, that's, that's what accounting training gives you. You mm. know, you—you you, you all because again, this going going back to the the worm versus the birds eye view uh, perspective. Accounting is good at both. You know, so back in the day when I was a an article clerk uh, training for my chartered accountancy. I must have audited, I don't know, literally 10,000 odd invoices. That's the worm's view of how the firm actually spends money. Mm-hmm. And then the bird's eye view. I mean, accountants are good at understanding how information flows through uh, businesses and, and uh, organizations. You know, How does the document flow work? How does the information flow work? Where might the potential bottlenecks be? Where might potential risks be? You know, Where uh, is quote-unquote stewardship, not actually being exercised. Mm-hmm. Do you spend the company's money as though it's your own? Mm-hmm. And you know, smaller businesses, family businesses, private businesses, this is less of a problem. But yeah. as the enterprise becomes bigger and bigger because you need more capital to go mm-hmm. after larger projects, the agency problem becomes larger and larger and larger. And yeah. if you get into a very sophisticated uh, capital market, like the, the, like the US or the UK, mm-hmm. as I said, the, the value chain that links... The the real share with the capital that a company gets has become so dispersed, so disconnected, and mm-hmm. full of so many intermediaries with their own objective functions. Uh, so it becomes a complex dance mm-hmm. of these players, uh, and 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 who's more powerful? In either selling a narrative or in lobbying the rule makers. The rule makers themselves have an agency problem. Yes. You know, so they claim to represent the main street of the average investor. But do mm-hmm. they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, very what, yeah, very big question.
0: Very big question indeed. And, and and thinking about this then, and thinking about all these players and all these stakeholders that are, are at play, in that context then, Shiva, what, what do you see the role of as the board as being in, in relation to this, this role of stewardship? What, what is the role of the board fundamentally in ensuring stewardship?
1: Well, somebody has to represent the the owner right mm-hmm. and and that institution is supposedly the board uh, the the board is, is it a first best uh, solution to this problem uh, probably not you know I often say that the boards are uh, thinly informed they're effectively people who are probably at the end of their careers who are on a board and who depend on management for the information on which management will be held accountable for? It's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, are they fully informed? Do they have incentives? So, if you look at the the, the average board member, uh, even in a you know a Fortune five hundred company in the U.S., would be paid something that on paper looks like a lot of money 200000 dollars. But it's it's a it's a bizarre kind of contract. It's not enough money for you to do a bang up job. Hmm. but it is just about enough money to show up. Right. So, you know, so, so are you fully motivated? Do you have all the information you need to actually hold management accountable? Uh, and career ambitions too. This is by and large your terminal job. Hmm. You know, you're, you're almost retired. So, you know, is, is, is this the ideal arrangement? Perhaps hmm. not. Uh, so things have evolved in a way where, uh, you know, boards are what they are. But if you were to think of maybe the next iteration of wh- where you want boards to be, mm. maybe the benchmark is closer to what you might see uh, in a private equity company. For mm. instance, you get two or three shots at uh, being a board member of a private equity company. And, you know, if you fail, then you're gone. So yeah. there are huge penalties to not performing. You also have very large financial stakes, it's not two, three hundred thousand. You probably own four or five percent of the company as a board mm-hmm. member, and if you if you you know you really have skin in the game. This yeah. is the other worry, you know. As I said, it's very easy to spend other people's money. So, you know, boards unfortunately have all these incentive issues, and there are. This is not to say that board members are uh, you know, they slack off. I mean, they work very hard. Most of them are people of very high integrity, but structurally, the system has a problem yeah you know and as I, as i often say you know you need uh, you need good systems that can yeah. that can withstand bad people as yes. opposed to relying on a few good people trapped in a bad system yeah uh,
0: yeah. yeah it's a very good point because so that that very idea like the way that it's set up like you say management's providing the board with the information on which it's going to be judged and and that can be that can be an issue. I know in boards that I've worked on in the past that, that has there have been performance issues. And I've been on boards where we haven't got to the right to the heart of the issue because nobody on the board has been a, a an expert in that specific area. And it's an operational thing. So really the board's kind of digging in, maybe where technically it shouldn't, but it needs to do because there is this performance issue that just won't go away. And then you get somebody on the board who sees it and has done it in their operational capacity, and then they can get the answer eventually. I I've seen that happen myself in my own experience. And so it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. And like you say, that relies on that relies on a good person, not just a good person in terms of character, but a good person in terms of having that specific expertise who can step in and say, actually, I've been in situations where we've had this problem and we fixed it. And this is what we did. So, so they know how to act, they know what to look for, but they also know the questions to ask to dig that a little bit deeper and to really get to the bottom of it. So it is, it is quite an interesting, an interesting situation, shall we say, in terms of ensuring that there is that, that there is that integrity and that, there really is accountability in the man in, in terms of the management because ultimately the CEO reports to the board. So it's kind of like his performance review when he's, he's meeting with the board or with the chair of the board and, and seeing how things are going and and what is it that gets put forward. So very interesting, very interesting questions there.
1: Um, you know, you've raised so many interesting issues. So, so th- these are deep issues. I mean, you have the exact same conflict if you're a regulator, say, mm-hmm. trying to manage... Uh, a trillion dollar bank, you know, because the they'll often tell you uh, that you don't know the plumbing, mm-hmm. as in you don't you don't know what's underneath under the floors. Mm-hmm. That's that's the ultimate comeback. As a regulator, you just don't know how this works, mm-hmm. and you're dead in the water, right? Because so then then they just bamboozle you with detail. Mm-hmm. So so you see the exact same issue. In a boardroom, not only do you need the expertise, as you mentioned, you also need to be willing to incur the social cost of being a pain in the ass. Mm. And you know how how many of us are willing to do that? I mean, it's mm. so awkward to sit in a boardroom and ask a CEO about a succession plan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you know, our our desire to be socially acceptable is so high, mm. so high. I mean, there's so many examples in history, as you know, people people would would do anything. To not be seen as a, as a social outcast. So I mm. often tell, you know, my students, you need a designated rock thrower, you need somebody whose role it is to be a pain in the ass. Because one of the biggest issues in boards is groupthink. It's so easy yes. to just say, yeah, yeah everything is great. Uh, sometimes you wonder, what are these people thinking? Well, mm. because the the, the the pressure to conform to that social club is very high. And let's face it, boards are clubs. It's hard to yes. get in. But uh, you know, they by and large, uh, you know, it's it's usually friends and family, and to some extent, it can be a, a bros club, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you know what I mean. Uh, and you know, all these attempts at trying to make boards diverse, etc., notable, but and good, but would, will 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 they have success? I don't know, you know, because mm-hmm. the fundamental issue won't go away. At the end of the day, as you, as we discussed, you know, they rely on management for the information. To evaluate them, which is kind of bizarre. Uh, they may or may not have the expertise. Even if they do, do they have the the, the social gumption to keep pushing uh, yes. and not be seen as an annoying, uh, you know, uh, Cassandra? And eventually, people will stop listening to you because mm-hmm. of that. Uh, because there's always pressure to move on. You know, board board agendas are so packed. Mm-hmm. You know, even if they spend you know, I don't know something like 200 hours a, a, a year. Uh, which is the, which is the usual requirement? Uh, mm. Like roughly thousand dollars an hour, like roughly two three hundred thousand dollars is the is the payment here. Uh, is that enough? It probably isn't. Mm. I mean, just imagine if you're if you're on Microsoft or GE's board, you know, business in a hundred plus countries. How on earth would you know what management is up to? So you have to trust, rely on systems, uh, and by and large, hope and pray that something doesn't go wrong. Yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's because uh, it's very hard. So, so the, the, So going back to at least you know keeping the conversation maybe uh, confined to perhaps structure as opposed to people. The structure is messed up. Hmm. You know these are part timers usually at the end of their careers, relying they're thinly thinly informed, arguably not as motivated despite claims to the contrary. At least in terms of financial incentives. Uh, how, how how do we expect? Boards to really act well, given these mm. structural problems. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they don't do anything. I mean, they're obviously yeah. they, they can't, they, when there's a lot of pressure uh, mm. in terms of say CEO selection and so on. The, the boards play a very important role, especially when there is a crisis. Yes. But when it's business as usual, how involved are they? Uh, it's frankly unknowable. I mean, I'm an mm. empirical researcher. Trust but verify. I'm happy yes. to trust anything provided you show me some data. It's very hard yeah. to know what boards do. They don't keep minutes, and if you expect them to keep minutes, chances are you'll probably get, you know, yes. good, <laughs> goody goody minutes because the yeah. real meeting will happen somewhere else. Yes. Uh, so it's it's a tricky problem, and unless you fix the financial incentive, that's one way to start. You know, can we hire, as you said, people who are steeped in the industry, give them huge financial incentives, but also hold them accountable. Mm. Mm. You know, we don't yeah. we don't see that in today's board. So all these attempts at fixing other things in my mind are sadly peripheral. They don't get to the heart of the problem.
0: Yes. True. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting you mentioned as well about the, the packed agenda. So so mentioned, talking about the structure, really, really simple point is the agenda, because it strikes me that that one thing that you need, and this is something that Nell Minow Mino mentioned when I interviewed her, is in order to have an effective board, you need plenty of time for questions because what, quali- what makes a good board member, what-, what the key qualifications? Asking good questions is one of them. But you also need to have the time to, to ask those questions because if-, if the agenda is too packed, then the board is bamboozled. And-, and I've like I say, I've been on a board before where we got to- we did at one point get too much information. We, got- we had a consultant come in and this was fairly early on in my board member days. And his question was, well, his observation, first of all, was you give your board members an awful lot of information to read. The second question was, what the hell do you want them to do with it? Because if you give them something, because board members were pulling at these loose threads and we we couldn't really get through what we needed to get through fundamentally because there was just so much, there was a sea of information. So it strikes me as well in terms of probably a structural thing in terms of setting the agenda is that even just getting the right balance between... What information is given to the board and thinking about what you want the board to do with it as well. And, and seeing, I suppose, for management to see the the board as partners rather than as the, the overlords, the, the ones to be worried about because they can fire the CEO or they can cause a massive, a massive ruckus or something like that. So really interesting. I wonder then, this is a good question to kind of segue into to corporate culture then. I wonder what you see, Shiver as a conduit, if there is one, between corporate governance and corporate culture?
1: Oh, it's central, you know, so I've, I've done quite a bit of work on culture. So mm-hmm. I often tell people it's the, it's the one asset that's not on your balance sheet, perhaps the mm-hmm. largest, you know, so, so so when we ask people about, uh, and we've run, we've run the survey several times, about, you know, 1300 odd executives think more than 75% of them said the top 3 key value driver in our company is culture. Mm-hmm. And what is culture? You know, it's it's a very hard topic to rigorously measure uh, and, and and analyze because there's no there's no clear definition. You can say mm-hmm. it's it's probably uh, the best i've heard is it's, it's what you do when nobody's looking. Yeah, right. Uh you know what? What are the unspoken norms? Uh, do you steal paper clips from the office? Kind of thing. Yeah. That's a minor, minor issue, but, <laughs> but but you know what I mean. What what do yeah. you do when you're not looking? Uh, or maybe a few million dollars in case you're a you know unscrupulous CEO. Uh, so culture, you know, unspoken norms, etc. Uh, how does it fit with governance? So in our work, we found boards were remarkably unimportant. In governance, and I'll, 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 mm. I'll leave a link to the paper. That's kind of disturbing, actually. So, mm. so uh, what we found were, were boards are quite involved in identifying the CEO and empowering the CEO. You know, making sure that the person's well paid and so on. After that, they are pretty disengaged. Mm. So. Can board? Well, boards, I think, have at least some responsibility in terms of understanding what the culture is like. Mm -hmm. It's a very tricky situation, you know. If you ask the CEO or the divisional managers about culture, they'll have a very different perspective on uh, how the company is run versus asking somebody at the shop floor Mm -hmm. down in the bottom. So, Mm -hmm. so you need both again the worm and the bird's eye idea that the top down and the and the. Bottoms up perspective uh, to culture, you'll get very different responses, and there mm. are subcultures to deal with, etc. Uh, one of the big f- findings in our uh, in our work was that uh, companies that don't walk the talk are the ones that see uh, bad outcomes. By that I yes. mean, I mean you, you you walk into any you know any any. A, a big big bulge bracket bank. You're going to see you know, a plaque on the wall saying all kinds of wonderful things about how we swear by our customers, we take care of yeah. our employees, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, what do you actually do to live yes. out those values? That's what matters. And people are incredibly smart. You can't fool them. You know, employees. Yeah. So you know, if you if you if you say one thing and you celebrate something else. What's actually rewarded, celebrated? Who gets promoted? Who gets the raises? What kind of people are we hiring? Uh, who gets the breaks? Who gets the bigger assignments? You know, is there s- systematic exclusion, uh, and so on? Uh, so, so the the other disturbing thing in our research is is that you know I think fifteen percent of uh, senior leaders. These are senior leaders i'm sure you'll get worse numbers if you ask junior people 15% mm-hmm. of senior leaders in a company said that their culture is exactly where it needs to be right. so that's it's it's kind of shocking actually mm-hmm. so when you ask them why they say you know leadership is underinvested in culture uh, and we got so many fascinating comments about you know the reluctance to discuss the elephant in the room or uh, you know backstabbing you know nepotism just sheer inaction or you know somebody becomes a boss and then they acquire Hans they think they're too smart they never talk to anyone else (laughs) Uh, they think they know everything there's it's not a a, you know a collaborative consultative uh, uh, arrangement Uh, and I'm sure these comments will resonate with with anybody who works for a large institution you know uh, cultures uh, I think are sadly more rotten than we acknowledge uh Mm -hmm. Because it's a it's a difficult issue to measure, digitize, and go after. We mm-hmm. probably ignored them. These issues. Uh, it's 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 the it's literally the twenty dollar bill on the street, the proverbial twenty dollar bill that needs to get picked up. But it's very hard to fix. Mm-hmm. Cultures are very hard to fix. Uh, companies and people are creatures of habit. We all have mental silos on how we operate. Changing that becomes complicated, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, but I wonder how many actually put in genuine effort to fix it in the first place? Yeah. I think it's an asset that's highly underinvested in. Uh it's it's a super important point. It's it's, mm. it's something you can't touch and feel what you know yes. when you go into a company. You hang around for a week, you quickly understand you know, it's kinda of, this is a strange place. This yeah. is how people work. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, it, so. interesting, interesting Shiva. On the on that point, I wonder how then. So, so you mentioned it, it's a really underappreciated and you, you refer to it as an, as an asset. And I find that very interesting because when you think of an asset, you think of something tangible. You think of something that you can lay your hands on that, that is on the balance sheet, very much on the balance sheet and you can do all sorts of things with it. You can amortize it and goodness knows what else. But culture, like you say, is, is intangible and it's that feeling. So there's a, there's a feeling, there's an emotional side to it and you can tell whether something's off. And we all can. We, we use our human intuition to do that. So so how then can, how essentially can we, in, in a simple way, define a good culture versus a bad culture? And, and what is it that we're really looking for in aligning values and norms?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. So, so there's no one size fits all answer, right? So for instance, I would argue Amazon is a hard charging culture. But to some extent, people know that. So if, mm-hmm. you, if you think you'll get chewed and uh, you know, consumed by the, the pace and the intensity of that company, you don't come to work for them. Mm-hmm. And you can say the same for the investment banks. although They're trying to become uh, somewhat more uh, gentler uh, in yeah. recent times, partly because they've had trouble recruiting people, mm-hmm. uh, including our graduates. Uh, uh, so, so there's no one-size-fits-all idea sure. So it depends on where you are as a company, you know, Amazon's Mm -hmm. whole, again, going back to Amazon as as an example, the classic day one idea that we are a perpetual startup. So we need to be hungry, we need to be, you know, on the go. Uh, So what values are you trying to, uh, you know, uh, push there, maybe agility, maybe innovation, Mm -hmm. the uh, flexibility, Uh, Good attitude, because everything can change on you at any point in time. You can't afford to be a whiner. You don't Mm -hmm. want somebody with an entitlement complex, as opposed to something else. You know, I'm just making up an example. Now, let's pick something else on some some other at the other end of the paradigm, right? Uh, IBM, you know, IBM's definition of a good culture is completely different, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know, IBM is is an interesting example because I think it's the only technology stock that's a value as opposed to a, a growth stock, because they've, they've actually lost revenue year, mm-hmm. up, year over year for, for many years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're almost in, in something like a turnaround kind of world. And w- what do you need to do there? You really have to wonder, you know, what are our core strengths? Why are we falling behind in terms of cloud mm-hmm. computing and the other things? And what can we do? So IBM has for a long period of time had a culture of internal promotions so yeah. they don't usually get people from the outside to run the company, mm. which again has pros and cons, mm. right? Uh, because may- maybe maybe this is a time when you probably need somebody from the outside to shake things mm. up a little bit, to question old assumptions, to look at things from a, a different perspective. So what is an ideal culture? Going back to your point, Tom, it's sadly, completely circumstantial. It depends yeah. on the same company over the over a Long history may not want the same culture. Hmm. So Microsoft was a scrappy startup, perhaps in 1987 when they went public. Hmm. But not anymore. They're happy hmm. being uh, number two in most markets. Hmm. Uh, you know, and that's fine. You know, so so. Uh, but I think. The right kind of culture can make a huge difference by picking, by, it'll help you attract the right kind of people to work for you. Yeah. Because yeah. there's no expectations gap, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. come to Amazon, you know that this is a hard place. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't fit in, it's probably not a good fit. And no. you, it, yeah. you'll be unhappy, I'll be unhappy. We're just different. That's mm-hmm. not our DNA. You come to IBM, you expect a very different life. You come to Microsoft, you probably have a very cushy, reasonable 40-year-a-week uh, gig. Mm-hmm. Because they're a very mature company. It's you know the the, the Windows business is basically a cash cow. The money keeps coming in. Yeah, you know, they're doing well, well on cloud. Different world. So, mm-hmm. uh, but 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 my my you know the the, the the thing that always bothers me is that you know attempts at trying to capture and digitize some of these qualitative ideas are missing. People have, you know, haven't, you know and this is something else that you know we've discussed before. We spend a tremendous amount of time crunching numbers. There are mm-hmm. lots of numbers in a 10K. You know, I can crunch any which ratio and look at trends and this and that. Very little time is spent understanding the the, the culture and the company. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you don't hire resumes; you hire people. Yes. So yeah. you want to understand the story behind the resume, and that, that's a whole missing market for information in my mind you know mm. the, the, the a, a, a fundamentals uh, market for people yes. running the
0: company wow that that's really interesting it it actually chimes with a comment that that you made on linkedin that i wanted to to pick up on where you said a wise person once told me quote you guys spend too much time conducting fundamental analysis of numbers you need to spend more time on fundamental analysis of people running the company and I found that really interesting because I thought to myself, well, there are a few questions that came to mind. One of those was, what might that look like? What might that fundamental analysis look like? And what sort of what sort of character attributes and values are you looking in good leaders? Given that you mentioned that that the tone starts at the top.
1: So, so, so that comment was uh, made more from the perspective of an investor. So, mm. you know, a lot of my work you know, is looking outside in trying to understand both the, the financial and, you know, other sustainability of a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so that was the context behind the comment. It's kind of, it's, it's disturbing because if you if you look at a proxy statement of a modern American company, you'll probably get six lines describing the top five managers. Mm -hmm. There's more information about how much they are paid and how they are paid and these fancy, you know, stock options with these bizarre vesting conditions. Mm -hmm. Very little, very little about the individual and Mm -hmm. people in the trade know, right? Because they know what kind of individual Tom English is, they know what kind of individual Shiva is, Mm -hmm. uh, where does he or she you know, where, where are they likely to thrive? Where are they likely to fail? Is this person a micromanager? Can they make a decision? Uh, some of them are just deal makers. To have to them, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of analogy. They just want yeah. to go buy companies. Uh, some of them are uh, turnaround specialists. They're very good at a crisis uh, mm. in, in terms of you know nipping and tucking, cost controls, stick to the knitting, get out of bankruptcy or get out of a tough spot kind of people. And sadly. They can't perform when the company Mm -hmm. improves. So how do I as an outsider figure out whether the manager is fit for the role is the the worry. Uh, And again, I think this is is another arbitrage waiting to be exploited. Uh, There's very little in terms of rating cultures, very little in terms of tracing uh, uh, a manager's career across time. As, and even if you give me, you know, objective data, that's not all that interesting. You know, somebody who was, say, the divisional head of Coca-Cola that became the, uh, say, the CEO of uh, Procter & Gamble, that's great. But what kind of a person was he or she, yes. you know, uh, what would what would uh, his or her peers tell me about that, this individual? What would the mm-hmm. senior person t- people tell me? What would the people who work for this person tell me about this individual? Mm-hmm. That kind of data... I think is invaluable, and, mm. and and a few people in the trade know because they'll make phone calls, but but that but that's that's valuable hidden information that nobody else knows about. Mm. You know, so you know something needs to be done to mm. eventually digitize that information because if mm. you want to get a sense for uh, you know how well a company is going to do. The people matter, and sadly, the PR machines are wonderful. I mean, think about think about GE's uh, you know now somewhat uh, tarnished CEO Jeff Hamilton. Right when he was in power, people thought he was a rock star. It's fantastic, you know. The, the, the presentations are wonderful, appearances on CNBC are great. Uh, but then GE just imploded. You know, GE was an American icon. How does a company like that implode? And I remember. You know many public appearances where I've seen Jack Hamilton, I wouldn't know. I had no idea. He sounded fantastic. Uh, I'm sure he was fantastic. You know, but but looking back, history hasn't been kind to him. So how would I, as an investor, uh, why why should I not know that ahead of time? Is my question. Yeah. And why does it take 15 years for something to implode? And that's just one data point. I'm sure there are thousands yes. out. Right. So so there's a huge uh, hole, there's a big missing market for Mm -hmm. uh, information about what you might say, an analog of uh, fundamentals-based investing in the world of people,
0: senior Mm -hmm. leadership.
1: And that's just the beginning. You probably want to understand the top 50 people running your company. No disclosure. There's nothing out there. Unless, uh, you know, things like LinkedIn, things like... uh, You know, uh, Glassdoor are beginning to scratch the surface Mm -hmm. in trying to to digitize uh, information about a company's human capital. Before LinkedIn, I had no hope. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of excitement about human capital uh, metrics in the US. The SEC is trying to mandate stuff. You know, uh, I've written about this quite a few times. Only 15% of American companies even tell you what their compensation and labor costs are. Wow. So before we get fancy about human capital, I don't even mm. know what you what you spend on people. Right. I don't know the wages number, the payroll numbers, the, this, some bits and pieces data on options. So at the at the very minimum, I need to know that. And more important, mm. what are your people doing? LinkedIn mm. gives you. I think it's a, it's a highly underused data set. Mm-hmm. It gives you a remarkable insight into into into, into a, 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 especially if you have white collar labor. I mean, if yeah. you if you have storefront labor, they don't really have LinkedIn accounts and so on. But if you have white collar labor, just imagine what I can find out. I can I can get into Microsoft's LinkedIn account and I can figure out how many people work on R&D. Hmm. Going back to my you know something that I was talking to you about before we started recording, you know Amazon spends forty two billion on R&D, but spends three hundred words in its 10K to talk about R&D. Hmm. But maybe I can get into Amazon's LinkedIn account, get a better sense for what are these people doing in r how yeah. many of them are coders, testers? What are they working on? Because it's a voluntary database, people, you know, want to talk. Yeah. Especially about yeah. the good things. they yes. They not tell us about the bad things. That's a that's a bias. Fine. But at least mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy to, you know, latch on to any scraps of information I can get, mm-hmm. as 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 a, as a fundamentals guy, because mm-hmm. I want to understand what what the people are doing. And LinkedIn is a huge blessing. You know, we spend six hours in class trying to figure out. Uh, what a company's labor costs might be, as a case study, and getting into these nuances—you know, how many people are r; d how many on the shop floor, how many salespeople—you know, what exactly are they selling? Mm-hmm. Because unless you get a good sense for, uh, you almost need to, uh, you need a magnifying glass, an X-ray machine of some kind, on on human capital, both at the senior level and at the bid level. Uh, otherwise, it's quite hard to understand where the company is headed. You know, simple things. For for instance, if you're about to, if you're looking for a job and you're getting restless, you're probably going to update your LinkedIn account. Yeah. So even a signal, uh, you know, of uh, say abnormal updates to LinkedIn profiles at X Y Z company could be a huge early warning signal about where the company is headed. Hmm. So much to be done hmm. with yeah. with people. Uh, just understanding the people behind the numbers.
0: Yes. Very very paradoxical as well, isn't it? We, we live in a world that's so obsessed with with technology, especially in business and, and algorithms and what can tech do for us and where can tech take us, but yet business sustainability is so heavily predicated on human beings and human decisions and human relationships, and that's just not going to change, and that, that's what I find quite amazing about all of this. We, like I say, we're so eager in business to talk about tech and the wonders of tech, but it comes down to people. I, I, have a, I have a phrase that I've been working on around, around self-governance in, in regards to individuals, you know, self-governance within the organisation for good governance of the organisation. I think that's what it comes down to, that people are able to, to govern themselves well and not do not necessarily crazy things, but, but things that just really are out of step with the values and norms of the company and that can really damage trust, because a lot of this comes down to, and this is something, again, that I spoke with Nell Minow about, is trust, about how trust, when we talk about currencies and we talk about what is it that we should really be buying at the moment, is it gold, is it Bitcoin, is it stocks, is it bonds? The fundamental currency that we have at the most basic level is trust between, between people from person to person, whether it's manager to employee, whether it's manager to to CEO, whether it's CEO to board member, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. it just comes down to that, and that's just not going to change. And I find it oh, I find it quite. It's striking. actually going
1: to. It's going to become more important, partly because we have outsourced a lot of the production from the G7 and the Western world to Asia. So you know what's left? It's just people. Mm-hmm. You know, so increasingly, uh, for for so many large companies, uh, as 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 an indicator of this issue, you know, cost of goods sold. You know the 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 line item in the income statement about you know the, the what it what did it cost you to make the product that's actually s- smaller than something like sG a mm-hmm. for most companies just selling it general administration and these are iconic companies you can you know uber Cisco uh, Microsoft uh, a lot of the pharma companies like laxo and so on mm-hmm. so so this is a fancy way of saying it's all people yes and uh, you know, and managing people is hard. Managing machines is easy. Machines yes. don't have feelings. <laughs> machines will predictably break down. At least you can statistically forecast when they will. They won't. Right. They won't. They won't stage walkouts on you. They won't demand uh, that, that you let them uh, talk about politics in the office, etc., uh, etc. Et so people are hard to manage, mm-hmm. uh, but if you if you set the right rules of the game, which is what roughly speaking culture is all about. If you you know, and th- this is not just management speak, you know, trying to be mm. you know, guruish or trying to say that uh, yeah, you should empower people and so on. That's that's easier said than done. But mm. if you just treat people reasonably, fairly, uh, if you if you don't say one thing and do something else, mm. uh, there are lots of gains to be had. You know, it's frankly, most people I think enter the workforce with what you said, Tom. a feeling of trust, hoping to be, you know, hoping there's some reciprocity Mm -hmm. in relationships. But once they get stung, once or twice, you know, they get passed over for promotion, or they don't get the raise, or somebody else constantly steals their ideas and passes them off as their own. Mm -hmm. They don't get breaks, because somebody doesn't like you, somebody doesn't like your skin color, somebody doesn't like your gender, somebody doesn't like Mm -hmm. whatever. They get deeply bitter. That's when culture breaks down. Mm. And in my experience, you know, a lot of the middle and senior managers don't even know. They're not aware. They don't necessarily have a good sense for the pulse of the company. Uh, Several sadly manage up, Yes. don't necessarily manage down. Mm. You know, uh, so, you know, simple things like say, employee turnover would tell us a lot. The company is chewing through employees. Again, LinkedIn can do that if you yeah. you know if you can crunch the numbers. Uh, but I I can't agree with you more. It's 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 again it's the proverbial twenty dollar bill on the street. It's waiting to be picked. Uh, mm. You know, understanding the kind of people that make the company tick. Yeah, digitizing that and, and you know, there's a, there's a huge entrepreneurial opportunity there. You mm. know, if, if anything you can do to understand. The the, the 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 culture, the mood, the metrics, you know, if you can digitize that somehow, mm. uh that's huge value. Because in, you know, in all our micro worlds, for example, you know, I'm in an academic department. I mean, how do we hire? We get three hundred resumes a year. Uh but again, as I said, we don't hire resumes, we hire people. We invest a lot yes. of time in trying to get to know the person, getting them to come present their papers. It's a it's a it's a stress interview where thirty people are hurling questions at you. As a, as a junior person, you have defend what you did. So, you know, it's like an intellectual stress test. Mm-hmm. And then there's the there's the, the the culture fit test in some sense. Will you do well here? In Columbia, we have a very different identity. We believe in fundamentals work. We believe in, you know, uh, accounting being very important to how institutions are run. Mm-hmm. Uh, other schools don't necessarily believe that. So if you, you know, even if you're intellectually a whiz kid and if you don't necessarily believe in our mission, you won't do well here. You know, people in the trade know. But do people outside know? No. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same analogy. So, so this experiment is being played out in a in a, in a, in a million labor markets, many labor markets in, in, mm-hmm. in you know, companies. Uh, what does it take to get into Amazon? You know, who, who does well at Amazon? Who doesn't do well? Or whatever, or Microsoft, or Alphabet, or you know, JNJ or Glaxo. Uh, so when we ran these anonymous surveys, I was shocked at the 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 stories that people wrote in. And mind you, these are Not very junior people; these are like divisional manager type people at Mm. best. So they're not not below that. It will be very interesting to go and look at you know that that population as well. But we're just blown away by the by the cultural uh, dysfunction in companies. Uh, So I want to say you know it's 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 underexplored, but a huge problem lurking Mm. under the surface. And it is much more important to study than all the other things that we've studied. We, we spend a lot of ink on, uh, you know, earnings management and, you know, let's say in the world of finance, capital structure, or, you know, how to set up companies and so on. Hmm. Very, very little time has been spent understanding people, partly because a lot of us uh, are trained in the economics tradition, which is basically it emphasizes a black box. Yeah. It doesn't open the black box and look inside the company and that's what the management people are good at doing but the management people you know are not necessarily very quantitative Mm. so somehow one has to kind of combine these two uh, differing you know core competencies and uh, do something interesting Uh, Mm. and that will probably come more from the private sector Mm. you know than from academia Mm.
0: very interesting very interesting so so for all this talk about tech and quantitative data and all the rest of it, it it still it still all comes down to people i was going to say shiva just just towards the end of this this interview i, ha- I have to ask going back to the the board stick, sticking with people but going back to to the the, the board itself so to speak how how can let, let's say a board wants to go about bringing in good people to ask the right questions and to really challenge and to be a bit of a boat rocker not in a Narcissistic sort of way, but but in a positive sort of way in terms of really driving forward the company in, in a positive direction and maybe making some changes. How how would the board re- go about recruiting the right people? What sort of what sort of attributes and characteristics should should they be looking for in those sort of board members? And and maybe what sort of experiences should they be looking
1: for as well? You know, I'm sure I don't know whether i mentioned this before. I think boards continue to be clubs. Mm. so bringing uh, a person who doesn't fit into the club will almost never happen uh, mm. you know we can talk about what should be but will it is the question mm. so so given the current uh, and you know so, so, so these mandates for diversity etc are fabulous if you can guarantee that they would break groupthink and I'm not sure you know mm. you can bring a diverse person from, uh, you know, wherever Harvard or Stanford, everybody else went to Harvard or Stanford. Mm-hmm. Does that does that break group thing? I'm not too sure, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of if I have to kind of forget check the box ideas, because these are difficult ideas. So, how do you break the club? I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe if you make boards more effective, perhaps as I said, either by giving them much more skin in the game maybe some of these problems will automatically go away. Why do we have groupthink? Because as I, you know, as I often worry, the personal cost to the director for making a mistake, I would argue is not that high, hmm. despite claims to the contrary. People will often claim there are reputational costs, etc., which may or may not be true. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard to be sued if you're a director. Yeah. So if you don't have a lot of skin in the game, it's a, it's a difficult job you don't have your own you know you don't have your own staff for instance how are you going to figure out what what how should you create management so what mm-hmm. else can you do so so there are two or three concrete ideas i can think of one uh, as i must have mentioned before designate uh, a dissident a rock thrower you know somebody whose job it is to look at the other side mm-hmm. and, and investment professionals do it pretty well Partly because if they if they don't bring bad information to the table, if you're a CIO, a chief investment officer, if you make a bad investment, it's going to sting you. Yeah. So there's skin in the game doesn't happen as well with boards. You know. No. Point number two: a radical idea. Uh, bring in a short seller to present mm. to the board. You know, and ask them, "Why do you hate us? <laughs> What's wrong?" Mm. You know, because we rarely see these information bubbles getting punctured. That's what mm-hmm. we need more systematic ways of getting to maybe a customer who can come and present to the board. But again, it has to be a surprise. It can't be somebody that Mm. is kind of, you know, uh, somebody who necessarily had a good experience with the company, Mm -hmm. either a random sample or maybe so or board members can go out and talk to people in the field. Again, that's hard to do, given that it's a it's basically a part time job for which you get paid on the surface, a lot of money, which is frankly, not enough compensation, if you want to really do a a deep dive. Uh, So unless the structure is fixed, you know, these are maybe a couple of things that people can do, designate a rock Mm -hmm. thrower, have, the other thing I've heard is uh, have a, you know, why we will, why we don't want to get Amazon away committee, meaning, you know, what will disrupt us five years from now, you know, uh, Amazon just being a metaphor for some Mm -hmm. unforeseen disruption if you're a blockbuster could they have you know they had ample warning that netflix mm. was, was coming but they didn't do much the xerox Kodak, when I mean, the history of business is littered with complacency potentially because of groupthink potentially because you know people have gotten locked into a path dependent strategy and they find it very difficult to come out of that mm. what's going to shake them you know something that 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 breaks these uh, you know cozy Uh, Equilibria, if you will. Uh, Maybe a short seller, because, you know, uh, or as I said, you know, maybe a different version of the board where they have huge financial stakes and they're held accountable. Hmm. Uh, And I think that may be a better idea. You know, then a lot of these behavioral issues should hopefully go away. Uh, I go back to the the investment analogy. It's not that investment managers don't make mistakes, but they make fewer mistakes. Mm -hmm. In my view, boards make far bigger, too many mistakes. And they're usually mistakes of omission as opposed to commission. They don't don't look at stuff or they're completely blindsided more often than not. Mm -hmm. Why does that happen? It's very hard to know because we don't know what boards actually do. They don't maintain mm-hmm. merits, and it's very hard to trust the merits even if they do maintain them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are lots of conversations in the proxy world about you know busy boards and young boards and gray boards. And, you know, that, that gets to the composition of boards. You're basically going to rate me on whether I wear a black shirt or whether I have gray hair. How's that helpful? Mm-hmm. You don't know the process, you don't know mm-hmm. the social politics inside a boardroom. And that's what we want to get to as
0: investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Shiva, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And, and just in wrapping up, I have to ask the question, is, is there anything that you've worked on or produced that you would you would give a shout out to, that you would direct us to in relation to to governance or or anything else for that matter? That there is, I have to say, and I'm kind of answering the question for you, there's that very interesting paper that we haven't talked about tonight, do the socially responsible walk the talk. So is, is is there anything like that or anything else that that you might shout out for us to, to have a look at after the after the podcast?
1: Oh, sure. The, the three three areas of work: one, uh, the whole ESG area, which we didn't which we didn't get to, just fascinating, yeah. I think. And uh, you know, a lot of my work finds that greenwashing is more the norm than the exception. Hmm. Uh, so the the press is full of breathless articles about how ESG uh, investing earns you alpha. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I mean, it's pretty hard to find evidence for that. So again, trust but verify in that context. I would say, point number two, on a more positive note, culture, uh, hugely ignored, highly important, but difficult to measure and digitize. But that's an opportunity. You know, uh, the the third idea, uh, going back to my day job, if you will, the reporting model in the U.S. is just broken. So if you think about you know, how value is created, Econ 101 says it's a combination of materials, labor, some capacity, uh, could be financial or physical, and some managerial mm-hmm. talent. You shake and bake and you, know, you have a product. <laughs> but if you take that framework to a, to a modern income statement, it's impossible to get straight answers to any of these questions. Mm-hmm. I don't know what material costs are. They're sitting in cost of goods sold. How much do I know about the supply chain? Not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I know anything about labor? We've discussed that extensively. No. Do I know anything about managerial talent? Not real. Do I know anything much about uh, even physical capacity? You know, we have this thing called depreciation, which is a travesty because it's it's some historical cost spread over like twenty years. There's no information there. People are not telling me how much they need to spend to stay competitive. That's what I need to know. How much did Netflix need to. Spend on new content to make sure that it doesn't lose market share mm. to say, uh, you know, Hulu or uh, HBO Max or Disney Plus. That's the notion of maintenance capex. I don't know that. So the reporting mm. model is is in my view the US quite broken, and remarkably, very few people are asking questions. I mean, the, the the regulators take their own time to fix things. They have to due process and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm surprised why is the voluntary market not not making more noise about these issues? And I wonder whether it's the whole ETF phenomenon, you know, or are people buying baskets of stocks without thinking about the fundamentals. You know, how many mm-hmm. people actually read a 10K these days? They're usually 200 pages long. Uh, so those are at least three three ideas. So I can go on and on. Maybe each of them deserves a podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's absolutely. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Tom, for, for giving me a platform and for sharing this with you. Look forward to seeing you. In touch. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values Podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning, and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to Tom at stewardshipscom That's Tom at 3stewardships.com Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit
1: of sustainable success.